Welcome to the Brand Rounds Podcast, where we help healthcare professionals and medical device innovators build trust, amplify your reputation, grow in brand awareness, build authority, and differentiate your brand in the mindset of your ideal patient and clients. My guests today are David Meerman Scott, an international acclaimed business growth strategist, entrepreneur, advisor to emerging companies, and a public speaker. David's the author of 10 previous books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR and Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. He's joined by his daughter, Reiko Scott. She earned a neuroscience degree from Columbia University and she's now a medical student at Boston University. And I believe at the time of this publication or release of this podcast, she will now be called Dr. Reiko Scott. In her spare time, she writes and publishes fan fiction based on her favorite fantasy worlds, and she loves to appear at Comic-Con. So join me today as we discuss the latest book that they co-wrote together entitled Fanocracy. So David and Reiko, I love to hear about this conversation. So David, first with you, you're a marketing, a sales strategist, a best-selling author. And in this case, you're a dad (laughs) and your daughter is a neuroscientist and she is a physician. Congratulations. Almost, right? Almost. (laughs) Very close. We're already putting MD and graduate at the end of that. And we're going to talk about that for sure. But I'd love to hear what did that conversation sound like? when the two of you collaborated and said, let's write a book. Oh my gosh, it was really interesting because we were in a car. I remember distinctly, it was about five years ago, and I just kept quizzing Reiko about um, fandom. And you know, I'm a massive fan of The Grateful Dead. I'm a massive fan of live music. I've been to 804 live shows in my life, 75 Grateful Dead shows in my life. That and number I, keeps changing every time. Every time, every time we talk, exactly right. <laughs> because I'm such a geek, I keep a spreadsheet. So um, two weeks ago, I went to some live shows, although I don't think because we're recording this during COVID-19, I don't think I'm going to go to any live shows for quite a few months. But in any case, um, I was geeking out about how much of a a fan I am of live music, and I'm like, Reiko, like, you love Harry Potter, and you love going to Comic-Con. Um, tell me what this fandom's about, and how do millennials think about the things they love? And, and I kept asking her all these questions, and I said, I'm thinking I'm going to write a book on this subject, and I would turn on my iPhone recorder and record it. And finally, it was like, don't be an idiot. She's a better writer than you. Why not do this book together? Yeah, it took me a little convincing. I think after you went to a Comic-Con by yourself and then wrote something up and showed it to me, I had the realization that like, no, no, I need to write this. (laughs) Yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) We just have different fandoms. We We do, we have different fandoms. So we decided to do it together and it's great because... Um, you know, I'm a baby boomer, white male. Reiko is a mixed race, half Japanese. She was born in Japan, millennial woman. I did a liberal arts degree, Reiko, although it was liberal arts too, did a neuroscience degree and medical school. And so we're so different, yet our ideas on fandom are so similar. 
And Reiko, when you spoke with fellow physicians and you shared that you were going to be writing this book, what was the response that you received? A lot of the time it was it was surprise, you know, it's like, oh, when do you have time to do that, uh, doing that in between classes and, and shifts at the hospital. But um, I think it's it's when you start when I started talking about what it was about and, you know, individual things about fandom and like, you know, what TV shows that you watch and what books that you read and and how do you interact with other people that are your colleagues, it it seemed to resonate. And so. Um, it was actually when I was on the interview trail for residency programs, it was the thing I talked about the most because it was the, the rather odd thing on my, on my CV. Um, but it was a very easy conversation to have because everyone had that thing. They're like, Oh wait, yes. Can we talk about this, this TV show we both watched? So, um, <laughs> so it turned terrific. out to be, to, to be something that brought people together. Yeah. And Reiko, beginning with you first, what's one thing that you didn't expect from writing the book? Um, so, so my dad and I both had like a very good relationship with each other growing up. I mean, I am an only child. And so (laughs) a lot of my, you know, amusement from being a kid came from my parents, but, uh, I didn't realize how close we would become writing this book together. Like it's kind of a tricky thing, you know, doing something Mm -hmm. like this, uh, with a family member, but uh, we work really well together. Uh, we complement each other really well. And so I didn't, I didn't expect to, to come out of it with that. Yeah, and David, as a father myself, I must say that's got to feel good to hear your daughter say that. And so now I turn it to you and say, what's the one thing that you didn't expect from writing the book? Um, well, just to f- pick up on what Reiko said, I mean, what we had to do, we realized really quickly, was not come into writing a book with a hierarchical situation that had been... Um, this our relationship when we were father daughter it had to be a, an equal relationship. She had to be able to beat me up when my writing stinks, um, and she did <laughs> um, but what but what was really surprising to me is we went in to this book with the thesis that any organization can develop fans the way that Harry Potter has developed fans, the way that the Grateful Dead has developed fans, um, uh, movies, sports teams have developed fans. Those are the obvious ones. And we went in with a thesis that any organization can develop fans. And it was, and I just didn't know whether that was true. Um, And we just looked around for examples, and it turns out it's absolutely positively true. We found government agencies with fans. We found um, nonprofits with fans. We found enterprise software companies with fans. We found doctors, lawyers, dentists with fans. I mean, it's, it's all over the map. Um, just an example, NASA, 50 million fans on Instagram. They're a government agency. You can walk down any street in the, in the world and not be surprised to see somebody wearing the T-shirt of a government, government agency of NASA. And we found an automobile insurance company called Haggerty Insurance that um, they have literally over a million fans, and they do automobile insurance. They do classic car auto insurance. They, have, they go to classic car events, and they're there together with people who love classic cars. They have a YouTube channel with over a million um, subscribers. They have the Haggerty Drivers Club that have 650,000 members. Um, they have places that people can interact and, and meet with other classic car lovers. And unbelievably... Um, people love their insurance company. They're huge fans of their insurance company. So it was surprising to me 
that in fact our thesis turned out to be correct, that we found examples of companies that have developed fans um, in every kind of business you can imagine. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. It, it's a perfect tie-in to my next question, which is you say that the key to create what you're calling a fanocracy, a fanocracy is to put the needs and wishes of people ahead of every other priority. And Reiko, this is a perfect question for you right now in the season that we find ourselves. What advice do you have for our doctors that are listening to us and that are also caring for their patients so selflessly during the coronavirus? I mean, it is, it's a hard thing to, to think about just because it is so global and it's like part of the population is uh, working harder than ever and part of it is stuck in this weird limbo, right, where, where we feel like we can't um, do anything at all. But I think what I've, what I've noticed um, going into it, which seems to connect to what we've found through, through uh, looking at different org organizations with phenocracies is how people have come together, um, especially in this digital world we live in now where we can connect to people far off in, you know, other side of the world that's still uh, facing the same things and have the same emotions over it. I think that sense of connection is what can help both uh, patients and uh, healthcare workers in this time, just because it feels like we're all in this together, even if we're all stuck either uh, in the hospital look at working uh, in just with your small group of people or stuck in your house alone. Um, I found that in my medical school specifically, uh, we as medical students weren't allowed to do any clinical uh, work anymore because of COVID, but uh, we found ways to support the staff of the hospital um, by, you know, volunteering to do uh, to do food runs for them or to do um, like babysitting um, or to help make materials uh, for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, things like that, that feel like we're all connected. And I think that if you're in the, the trenches of it, then knowing that everyone is, is behind you in that way is, is the community that builds you. David, what was that like for you as, as a father to watch your daughter and then so many other healthcare professionals um, put the needs of others ahead of themselves? Well, what's remarkable to me is that um, th these workers are highly likely to get this virus and they just jump into it and do their work and, and they're working incredibly long shifts. I was reading in the newspaper a couple days ago of a nurse who did a 48-hour shift, and then she got off and had to get some food in her and went to the grocery store, and, and the shelves were bare, and she just sat down in the floor and started to cry because, like, she is working so hard. And, um, I mean, I just think it's a remarkable thing that Reiko has gone into this field because it's so far away from my world. I mean, I'm I've, um, I've been a marketing guy my whole career, first for companies and for the last 18 years I write books and give speeches um, and advise companies about marketing. It's so different from my world that, that she's um, very soon going to be on the, well, in, in school has been, but will soon be on the front lines 
of this disease and on the front lines of emergency medicine for the rest of her career. It's incredible. Yeah, it is. It sure is. And I'm curious, what's counterintuitive for most leaders in creating a fanocracy? Um, for me, um, what I've noticed, and I people sometimes ask a similar question, but they say, um, what's the biggest mistake that organizations make um, when they try to develop fans? What I've noticed is that so many organizations focus on the product or service that they're selling, and that's all. And that's the first, that's what they lead with, that's what they focus on. You know, it's, it's buy my products, here's what we do, here's our offering, do you want to buy it? And um, that's not a way to grow fans, because you need to be thinking about um, the person or the organization that you're serving and you need to think about the problems that you solve for them and you need to think about the way that they think and you need to be thinking about um, the way they react uh, and so um, it, it for many people it's counterintuitive when I suggest if you want to grow fans you cannot talk about the product or service that you offer. You need to come at it from a different perspective. You need to come at it from the perspective of here's how I'm going to be helpful. Um, you know, sort of comes back to the Grateful Dead, and we, I wrote about, we wrote about this in one of the chapters, um, which we called Give More Than You Have To. Um, the Grateful Dead famously allowed their fans to record their concerts. Anyone who wanted to could bring in professional-level recording gear into the shows and record the concerts. And that was radical at the time because people said, well, that's ridiculous because you're selling um, um, albums. Why would you give away the idea of making those tapes? Well, clearly it, it, the reason is because it grows fans and then it gets more people who want to um, buy tickets to the show, and eventually more people who buy the albums. And I think the same thing is true in all of our businesses. What can we do to be incredibly helpful rather than just focusing on what we can sell? Yeah, I think that's so well said. And, and Reiko, I'm curious from your perspective and from writing the book, what have you learned about being, what does ridiculously inspiring mean to you now? ridiculously inspiring. Hmm. I feel like the, the more and more, like when I, after writing this book and thinking about it for a very long time, what I find um, the most amazing about uh, certain creators or um, pieces of media that I involve myself with, um, what I find like very, very cool about them is their ability to have a relationship with their audience um, and a very respectful, engaging relationship with their audience um, in a way that makes you, as someone who may have once been a passive consumer of uh, whatever they were making, now feel like an active participant in a community. Um, and it's not easy. It's, and, and thinking about all of the um, different organizations that we've looked at in writing the book, it's not an easy thing to do, um, but it, when people make it look easy, it's, it's pretty inspiring and something that I've had a lot more time to do stuck indoors during this time is, is actually watch um, video game streamers on Twitch. 
And <laughs> you uh, really? Yeah. Oh my, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, and there's like one in particular that I, I that I found does a very very good job at um, uh, bringing his community together um, in these Twitch streams. And it seems like a silly thing, but it's it's um, pretty inspiring and pretty um, um, amazing how easy he makes it look um, when I know how hard it is probably in to achieve. So <laughs> something that I didn't think that I, that I would think going into this. Oh, I love that example, Reiko. Um, I, I must digress for a moment and let you know that one of my hooligan high school buddies, and he and I are, are currently writing a book entitled Play on Words, Men at Pause. Um, mm. We are. Um, we went to high school together. We made a pledge to join the army and jump out of airplanes together, and we raised kids together, etc. Wow. His son is an endorsed athlete, um, basically um, an athlete in the sense that he was endorsed by Twitch. He he is now uh, hired by Facebook. His name is Rexilla, so R E X Illa Rexilla. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been really fun to see him build a fanocracy uh, around, you know, educating people on games and especially now in this current time period. Um, and so uh, it, he was my introduction into looking at games and how people can build, you know, their own fanocracies across all different platforms. And that really ties in nicely because both reading your book and listening to the audio version of the book. I like how you provide examples and, you know, certainly in healthcare in our space. And I'd be curious, starting off with you, Reiko, um, the principles that you share in the book, um, how do they apply to the patient experience? Or maybe you can share an example uh, that our listening audience can learn from. Mm, yeah, it's, it's a little different um, to be one-on-one, -on -one, which is the kind of relationship that I like having with patients versus a company that, you know, you might never see uh, all of the people who interact with your company. Um, but one-on-one, -on -one, just trying to get that connection because what, we, what it all boils down to is the human connection that you find and making sure that that patient in front of you um, knows that you are looking at them as a whole person. And it's something that comes up as like a touchy-feely subject in medical school and is often brushed aside as like, oh, it's about feelings. It's not really about the medicine or the, the science that we're learning. But um, there's so much that we don't get from a patient if they don't trust us to, to ask all of the questions. Um, and one that I write about in the book um, is a patient that I had when I was a third year in my medicine rotation who um, was there for uh, recurrent uh, urinary tract infection. He's there a lot. His, um, uh, he has a uh, gunshot wound um, and complicated uh, history of bladder issues. So um, in looking at his history on the EMR, um, thinking that like, oh, I know his story. I am a tired third year and I'm busy and he's not in his room and I can't interview him. And it's, he kind of became a nuisance to me rather than me thinking about how I could help him. Um, but when I finally did get to talk to him and as a third year had a little more time to, to sit down and really, really talk to him, 
um, at length, he was able to talk about like how he um, was worried and no one was telling him what was going on. And he um, just really wanted to, to have that conversation with a doctor that he just didn't have. And so um, it reminded me again that, that the way we give healthcare, like we can, you know, shove it in people's faces as much as we want, but um, the way that it really gets done is through that one-on-one connection that as physicians we can do really one-on-one um, because we can have that sit-down time between them, um, which may not happen as much in uh, bigger corporations. So um, things like that. I, it, it's, it's nice to be humbled once in a while, you know. So. David, when Reiko was a little girl, could you ever have imagined her saying, Daddy, I want to treat people with urinary tract infections and gunshot wounds? I know, right? It's incredible. Um, and I, I love that Reiko has been able to identify this type of medicine that she's really interested in, narrative medicine, um, that she's been interested in all the way back to um, her undergraduate years at Columbia University. And um, the fact that she is a published author and also writes speculative fiction understands how stories are put together and then uses that storytelling ability to understand the patient's total story as opposed to just the the um the symptoms to me is it's 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 utterly fascinating that she's been able to put those things together and um and and I'm and I'm proud of her and you know I'm not absolutely not um um a doctor, don't work in a hospital, never have. But what I found so interesting as we were doing the research and including um, people that are doing types of medicine is the idea of passion. And um, we, ha- we wrote a lot about passion. And uh, one of my favorite little lines from Fanocracy is, passion is infectious. And it reminds me of a dentist that I've spent time with. His name is Dr. John Marashi. And Dr. Marashi works in Southern California. And he, I met him about three years ago. And he said to me, David, you know, you, you've been talking about this idea of fandom. At that point, I, we hadn't named the book Fanocracy. So I, I was using the word fandom. You're talking about this idea of fandom. I'm a dentist. How in the world can I build fans? There's 10,000 dentists in Southern California. We're all the same. We all use the same template for our website. We all um, have pictures of us in our office um, on our website with our degrees behind us. We all wear the same white coats. We all do the same work. We all have pictures of dirty teeth uh, becoming uh, clean teeth. You know, what in the world can I do? And I said, Dr. Marashi, what do you love to do? And he said, oh, my God, I love to skateboard. It's my passion. I love skateboarding. I said, well, Dr. Marashi, let's celebrate the fact that you love to skateboard. So he actually ran with this idea. And, I mean, really ran with this idea. So he's got um, in his practice on the walls, he's got skateboards mounted, like dozens of them. He will skateboard from one examination room to another. Um, on his website, he has pictures of him skateboarding. He now has an Instagram with um, way over 10,000 subscribers, a dentist with 10,000 subscribers on his Instagram of him 
and many of the images are of him skateboarding. And so now he's not one of 10,000 dentists in Southern California. He's the skateboarding dentist in Southern California. And it doesn't mean that you need to be a fan of skateboarding to appreciate Dr. Marashi's passion for skateboarding. Any human recognizes that this is a, this is a, a man, this is a dentist who, has, who is living a passionate life. And I think that many, t- I mean, me as a consumer of healthcare, I see a doctor, I see the white coat, and it's just business for most of them. You know, it's, you know, I'm here to, I'm here to probe and prod and take your temperature and figure out what's wrong. But, you know, when you let a little bit of your personality come out, you need know, to wear a pin on your white coat of the sports team you love or, um, or, um, you know, ask your patient what they're a fan of or, or gosh, even Dr. Marashi's skateboard from one examination room to another, all of a sudden you're an individual that people can relate to in a very different way than just the automatron of a, of a, of a doctor that, you know, that every doctor is the same that many people think. So not being a doctor, but rather a consumer of healthcare, I love the fact that some doctors are so passionate about something outside their work and they show it um, and they show it online and they show it in person. I thought that was a great example. And I uh, purchased some copies of your book and I sent them to different doctors. Um, Reiko, you'll get a kick out of this. One of our clients, it turns out that Dartmouth University, for whatever reason, had the vision to take orthopedic surgeons and create an MBA program that was designed almost exclusively for orthopedic surgeons <laughs> oh, wow. as a subset. And one of our clients uh, in the New York City area graduated from there. And it's a, a great university setting that to this day recruits some of the best and the brightest orthopedic surgeons. And one of his big things is you know, what What really you pioneer and what you excel in, this narrative storytelling, this narr- narrative healthcare storytelling. And he's been a client of ours that we've really enjoyed how he takes kind of the narrative arc of the patient experience and the touch points and creates beautiful stories that, you know, help patients find themselves wherever they are in that journey. And so your, your book was really helpful in that. And so, Reiko, I think you're going to I appreciate this question because I'm you're a doctor. I'm throwing out the word prognosis and diagnosis so, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're ready. So so as a doctor, you're in the business of prognosis and diagnosis. And I I noticed in your book that you have a, a discussion around the alienation of misdiagnosis. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, I think. It's interesting. I'm I'm actually reading a book right now, um, "What Doctors Feel," the uh, by Danielle Ofri, um, about uh, how doctors, like the emotions that doctors feel, uh, change the way that they conduct medicine. Um, and it's just like my dad was saying: um, doctors are human, and how they show that uh, really changes how patients see them um, and also how the diagnosis, diagnosis, prognosis, all of that discussion happens. So um, the alienation of misdiagnosis often happens when 
um, we, we think we um, anchor ourselves in anchoring bias um, on a diagnosis that makes the most sense or it's the easiest or emotionally um, is the easiest to hang on to um, and give to a patient, you know, um, some like a, someone who has a drug use disorder, the infection that they have is obviously because of that and we move on. Um, and that often results because we're not really listening to the patient in the way that, that allows them to tell their story. I really like the um, idea of this uh, storytelling with orthopedic surgery, especially because um, if you're in the medical world, ortho, <laughs> uh, orthopods are, are not exactly the, the, the ones who are known to be the, the best listeners. Yeah, um, they're, they're like the lead singer of corn meat. <laughs> it's basically what I've come to the conclusion with. <laughs> I have some very good friends who are, who are going into orthopedic surgery, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> something like that. And, um, but, but giving, giving patients the, a way to, to connect to a story that exists um, is a very good way of doing that, saying like, oh, yes, this is my experience, or oh, I don't think it's this, but it's also this, um, is a way of connecting and saying like, oh, okay, like I can, um, I can listen to your story. You can tell me effectively what's going on, and then I can better diagnose you and better help you. Um, so it's it's very it's a it's a complicated um, uh, balance of your own emotions and biases as a as a physician and the patient who doesn't know maybe as much medically as you, but knows what's happening to their body the best. Um, and trying to, to balance that out in, in a way, because you're both human and you're both, you're both just two people coming together. So I That's like that. That's so good, Reiko. That is so good. I'm telling you that our doctors, and literally they range from being on the front lines like you to neurosurgeons to orthopedic surgeons, cardiovascular, they're really going to get a lot out of that for sure. And I can almost imagine way off in the future, not anytime soon, but way off in the future, um, if your dad's ever a patient, he's going to take the book and basically hand it to the doctor who's <laughs> treating him and go, yep, I need you to do everything that my daughter told you to do in this book. And then, yes, I'll put on the paper gown right now. I can just see that. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so I know, and David, this question is really posed to you because you've written so many best-selling books. I'm curious, with respect to fanocracy, what's been the best compliment, or maybe it's even a unique compliment related to this book that you've received so far? Oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, so I absolutely love, and this has happened quite a few times. I'm sure Reiko has, it's happened with Reiko as well. I love when some somebody reaches out to me perhaps an email, perhaps through social media, or perhaps they see me at a conference, um, although that's not happening now and with COVID, but it did happen in the early part of 2020. And they say, David, I'm a fan of fanocracy, or David, I'm a fan of your ideas. I love that they're using that word fan when they say that. And to me, that's um, um, it's such a compliment that somebody would take the time perhaps through social media or to reach out to me in person um, and say, 
I'm a fan of you. I mean, after spending five years of our lives researching and writing and thinking about fandom, to have people actually say they're fans of our work is kind of a remarkable thing. It seems to me, just my observation, one of the unique things about fanocracy is I hear people using it as a noun and a verb, that fanocracy in a verb tense is the framework that helps people understand the process of, you know, meeting people where they're at, et cetera. So that's just my observation that whether it was intentional or not, fanocracy a noun, fanocracy a verb, it's been an interesting twist for me. Um, well, Reiko, how many titles did we go through? Oh my gosh, that was that was a <laughs> an experience. <laughs> um, I, I think it was six months and five hundred titles that we had thought about, um, and we really, really wanted one that was a word that we could use that had not been used before. That we could have the URL uh, of for the web that. Um, the search engines would point to us that worked as a noun and a verb that on the first glance, you know what it means. Um, and, and man, did it take a long, and, and we wanted one word and man, did it take a long time to come up with that? But I think we nailed it. I think you did too. I, I've, heard, <laughs> I've heard others say the same thing to me. So I think that's great. Oh, so for our final question, and I think this perhaps could be the most difficult one. And I'd like to pose this question to both of you, that if you could have dinner with one person in the book, who would it be and why? Oh, with one person Mm. in the book. Wow. Maybe we should have a foursome, Reiko, you and me and someone someone (laughs) you choose from the book. That's right. And then someone I Uh, choose from the book. Um, I like that. And he is your dad, Nico, so you must listen to him. Uh, um, uh, shout one out if you've thought of one, um, Rico, but um, I'm going to, um, I'm really, really torn between three people. I'm going to say the three people and then okay. I'll have to choose one. So Bob Weir, um, founding member of the Grateful Dead, I mean, God, you got to have dinner with him, right? But then, <laughs> but then Mike Lavecchia is the founder and CEO of Grain Surfboards, um, hugely important story in the book. And then Mikhail Haggerty, I mentioned Haggerty Insurance before. He's the CEO, um, entrepreneurial founder of an insurance company that has millions of fans. Uh, but I'd have to go with Bob Weir. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to go for a selfish, a selfish one too, and say Ngozi Kazu, who who wrote Check Please. He's uh, just the, as, as me being a fangirl and wanting to pick the brain of, of a creator that I like, I think it's the same thing as you. Uh. <laughs> and ama- how amazing to have that foursome having dinner together, if we could ever pull that off. Mm-hmm. I, and we'll I, invite I, you, Matthew. You're invited. You because know, you're- I appreciate it. As a guy who lived in New England, uh, I can tell you that I know my way around and I would love to to join. And I had, um, in 2008, when we had the last great recession, um, right before that, 
I had talked to my wife and asked her permission to have a quick sabbatical. So I was part of an organization that had sold our biotech company to a large medical device company. And for two years, my wife let me go to culinary school and, and all those things. And she said, hey, are you thinking about being a chef? And I'm like, no, I just want to impress our guest on Friday night. <laughs> nice. So that, that has existed with me all these years. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'll cook, uh, but we'll all get, <laughs> it'll be great. It would be a great, a great five sum then. We have to, we have to, we have to invite um, my wife, uh, uh, Reiko's mother, Yukari, too, because she would be upset if she wasn't included. So we have a, <laughs> we have a six sum now. <laughs> now, now I'm intimidated with the cooking. Um, <laughs> when Mrs. Scott enters the picture, um, you know, it's it's funny. I, um, I, as a nod of respect to my father, when my father unexpectedly passed away in 2009. Um, my given name is Matthew Ray Scott, and um, David, I, I've always known you as David Meerman Scott. And yes. I've heard the story as to why you use that. And um, if, if I'm being honest, I, I heard that story around that time frame about, you know, you using David Meerman Scott. And when my father passed away, because my father always called me by my given name, um, I, as a nod of respect to my dad, I... I went by Matthew Ray Scott. And for people that know that, speaking of fanocracy, that I'm a David Meerman Scott, you know, fanboy, um, they've said, hey, are you doing this as kind of like a, you know, a riff off of David Meerman Scott? And I'm like, <laughs> so funny. maybe, maybe. <laughs> Allegedly, I am. And, I, so I, and I, I said, when I, when I in, uh, said to Reiko that we were going to do this podcast, I'm like, he's, he's a great guy, and he has the perfect name. His last, <laughs> his last name is Scott, and, he's got, uh, and he uses his middle name, so how cool is Oh, that? yeah. See, I just tell people, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, David you know, used to be a model, so I'm a plus-size hand model, so mm-hmm. we've got much in common, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, you know, is there, just in closing, you know, at the time of this recording, um, we've got people that are in, you know, in a period of uncertainty. What would you like to say to folks listening to this? Is just something brief that could be a word of hope or a word of thanks? Um, I'll, I'll go first because I'd love for Reiko to jump in on the maybe tying in the medical side somehow. But for me, um, when times are tough, um, I always come back to the things I love, the things I'm a fan of. And um, I love that, you know, live music, the Grateful Dead, surfing, some of the things I love. And there's a tribe of people who uh, are also fans of the same thing, who have become my very close friends. And in time of need, um, my Grateful Dead friends, for example, we've come together. We can't go to live shows together, but we've come together. So celebrate the things you love at a time of need. Yeah, and I, I think I'd, I'd say something similar. Um, my my medical view of it, I guess, um, and not a COVID side, but on a mental health side, um, is that we may be have we may have to be physically separated from everyone. But I found that this is a great opportunity to to talk to people much more than I would have before. I've been talking to my college friends a lot more um, than I had for the past few years, just because the online, we can be together and we can chat. I've been playing games online. I've been uh, watching 
uh, movies, talking about TV shows to my friends. So all of this is a way to to make sure that that no one in our circle feels alone um, and to enjoy the things we love. Well said. Thank you both for taking time. Uh, we didn't mention it earlier, but literally Reiko is taking time away from her honeymoon <laughs> to be on this podcast. So I, I want to say thank you and, and just celebrate, you know, not only how you're being selfless and will become even more selfless as a newly minted doctor in the emergency room, but also taking time away from your honeymoon. And, and David, you too, you've got a lot of things going on. Grateful. We're going to reach a lot of doctors and a lot of innovative designers of medical products that they're going to learn from the book Fanocracy, of which we're going to provide links in the show notes for everybody so they can learn more of how to get in touch with both David and Reiko and then how to order the book. Well, thanks so much for having us on, Matthew. It's been really fun. Thank you. 